This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture, that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone, and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. In Matthew 5.17, our Lord Jesus said about the law, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He followed these words with an exposition of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. The Apostle Paul repeated and explained the Ten Commandments in his epistles to the churches. After the Apostles, in reaction to persecution, the early church emphasized the necessity of sanctification and the moral law. The medieval church gradually came to teach acceptance with God by grace through faith and obedience to the law. The Reformation rejected that doctrine as contrary to Scripture and confessed justification by God's unmerited favor alone through faith alone. All the Protestants agreed that... Though we are not saved or accepted with God by our law-keeping, the law does have an important role in the Christian life. Bob Godfrey joins us in this episode to talk about the role of God's holy law in the Christian life. He's president and professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California, and author of several books, one of which is Westminster Seminary, California, A New Old School. All his books are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. We're talking about the law and how it functions in the life of the Christian. So let's set some basics. How does Scripture use the words for law? There's an Old Testament word for law, Hebrew word for law, Torah, and the New Testament word, or the Greek word, is namos. Can you give us a sense of how those words occur in Scripture? Well, part of what has always been a challenge to exegetes and theologians is that those words are not used in the Bible always with great specificity or a kind of clear definition that applies every time the word is used. For example, Torah in the Old Testament can mean what we think of as law usually, namely legal regulation, but it can also mean just the five books of Moses, which of course, if you look at the means, Torah can have a lot of history as well as regulations. And in the first five books of Moses, we believe there's a fair bit of gospel as well as regulation. So in reading the Bible, we have to be very careful to the context in which these words appear as to exactly what they mean, how they're being used, and how we're going to interpret them. That's why the discipline of systematic theology really is useful for the church, because the whole function of systematic theology is to try to take the whole data of the Bible, which obviously is a lot of stuff, and understand how the various pieces and uses of such words fit together to make a coherent whole of what God is revealing to his people. The traditional way of dividing up the Hebrew scriptures is a threefold distinction, right? The law, prophets, and the writings. 
And so when we speak of the law, we're speaking of the first five books in that sense, which encompasses the story of salvation, the covenant promises that God made to Abraham that were gracious in nature, as well as the 613 commandments, and particularly the Ten Commandments given at Sinai. So in the Hebrew Scriptures, the word law is used in a variety of ways. Even in the Psalms alone, the word law is used in a great variety of ways, right? Right. And as you say, we've traditionally talked about the Old Testament being divided into law, prophets, and writings. It might be slightly more accurate to say it's divided into covenant, covenant lawsuits, and covenant reflection, so that um, what we call the law has a lot more to it than just legal requirement. And the prophets are really both the what we often think of as the historical books as well as the prophets proper are really holding up a mirror to Israel out of her own history as to how well she's doing relative to God's covenant. And then the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, etc., are really reflections on Israel's life under the covenant of God. Sometimes when we think of the New Testament, or perhaps it's commonly held that the law is something that belongs to the Old Testament, and we think about everything that happened before the coming of Jesus, and then it is thought that really the New Testament is something other than that, and that the New Testament doesn't really have any law. Is that right, or how does the New Testament want us to think about law as a category? What you just described is wrong. Did you want more than that? <laughs> yeah, that would be. The listener might appreciate some explanation. Well, it's curious. There's an interesting sort of parallel, one could argue. As the first five books of Moses are often called law, so the first four books of the New Testament are often called gospel, and both of those designations are appropriate as far as they go. But in the gospels, certainly we see legal regulations being laid down for the people of God as well as history. And so just as the first five books of Moses maybe are more appropriately called covenant, so the first four books of the New Testament are probably best called covenant. They certainly contain the coming of Christ, and the coming of Christ is the great good news. And so the real contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament for Christians is between promise and fulfillment. And so we have the promise of the coming of the Redeemer, and then the New Testament is the fulfillment of that promise in the coming of the Redeemer. In the introduction, I read from Matthew 5.17, so I won't read it again, but you're familiar with that verse. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets— but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say in verse 19 that anyone who teaches someone to relax, the ESV says, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, or anyone who relaxes the least of these and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. How do we assess Jesus' view of the law? Well, I think the first thing that we see there is that Jesus is very serious about the moral law of God. Jesus did not come to say, God is a kindly grandfather in the sky who doesn't really care how you live. And that's not a caricature, exactly, because there have been people who have suggested just exactly that, right? Well, it's the ethos that dominates, I think, a lot of liberal and conservative churches in America today, that God is so approving and we're so adorable that he just can't resist us and therefore doesn't really much care how we live and just is going to provide for us no matter what. And there have been movements in the history of the church that have suggested that the Old Testament God was a mean, wrathful, judgmental God, and the New Testament God is a kindly, friendly, accepting God. Right. I mean, in the most radical forms, like with Marcion, you really end up with two different gods set over against one another. 
It's amazing how those notions develop. And what they point to again and again, heresy is always a reading of part of Scripture and a reading out of the rest of Scripture. And that's what we have to be aware of. As Bible believers, we want to believe all that the Bible says. And that is a big enterprise. And that's why we do programs like this, isn't it, Scott? It is. And in the modern period, particularly, Americans have been given to think, and I think Westerners generally, that now we know since the Enlightenment, since the 18th and 19th centuries, that God is everyone's father in precisely the same way. We are all brothers, you know, without distinction of any sort, and that we're all getting better every way and every day. You're certainly old enough to remember that when people <laughs> when people used to say that and mean it, right, not say it ironically. Right. And I remember grammar school teachers saying that. Now, maybe it was said with a touch of irony, but if it was, I didn't perceive it, which who knows? That's not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I do remember hearing it said in school and being given the clear impression that this was something that all reasonable people believed and couldn't be gainsaid. Right. And I think it's reinforced by the remarkable history of America, which has been a history of a people of remarkable resources and remarkable success. And that history then tends to reinforce our sense of optimism and reinforce the sense that since we love ourselves so much, God must love us just as much. And so we're back to the law. The medieval church thought of the Bible as being entirely law, and even the patristic church, to a large degree, came to describe the Bible as old law and new law, and in the Reformation that changed pretty dramatically. What happened? Again, I think what we have to see is that in the history of the church, very often the groups that get something seriously wrong still have something to teach us, and what we can learn appropriately from the mistaken, seriously mistaken attitudes of the medieval church, is that God in the New Testament is still just as holy as he was in the Old Testament. When Jesus summarizes the law and said, we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the medieval church was right to say that's not a loosening of the law. If anything, that's an intensification of the law. That is making the demands of the law even more serious and all-encompassing than the way in which, say, the law was summarized in the Ten Commandments. And there's some evidence for that, right? If you just look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you look at a woman with the intention of lusting, you've already committed adultery. If you think in your heart, you fool, you've already murdered. Right, exactly. That seems to go beyond Moses, to apply the law more strictly than Moses. The same is true with divorce. It seems that Jesus makes the legal requirement about divorce more binding than Moses did. And so it is understandable that some people reading the New Testament would say Jesus came not to end the law or to weaken the law, loosen the law, but he came to intensify the law. And then so according to the medieval church, the difference is the Holy Spirit was given in the New Testament and more grace was given, but that fundamentally the new covenant is still a new law and it's all law. And there's no distinction then between the law and the gospel except a historical distinction. And what did the Protestants do with that? How did they respond and react to that? If the medieval church said the gospel really is that God gives more grace to enable you to more adequately fulfill the heightened law that God has given you, the Reformation came along and said, no, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus taught and what Jesus did. 
Jesus didn't just come to make grace more available so that it would be somewhat easier for you to be better, so that by becoming better you would finally be acceptable to God. But the Reformation said when you look at the Bible, what you discover is Jesus heightens the law in part to say, you can never fulfill this. You need a substitute. You need someone who will stand in your place to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And I think when you read the New Testament, with those two competing points of view, it becomes pretty clear that it is the Protestant reading there that is correct. Jesus does heighten the law, but he does it with one of the aims being that we would realize we cannot save ourselves. We cannot ever meet the perfection of Jesus' standard. I mean, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect for your Father and heaven is perfect. We can't ever do that, and therefore we need someone else to do it for us. And so the Protestants distinguished between two kinds of speech in Scripture, the law, which says, do this and live, and the gospel, which says, Christ has done this for you. So that you will live. So that you will live. And so they both offer life, but they offered life on different conditions. Right. And we have to always bear in mind that the law is not exclusively given to drive us to Christ. That's one of its great and critical foundational functions. But at the same time that the law discourages us from hoping in ourselves and drives us to Christ, it also always holds up for us God's standard of holiness, God's standard of purity, and we are called to aspire to that. When Jesus says, be perfect, he's not just saying, so give up. He's saying, trust me, and then pursue that perfection. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And what you're describing is what traditionally Protestants have referred to as the third use of the law. Right. But before we get there, just to make crystal clear, one of the big breakthroughs of the Reformation was this distinction between the law as one way of speaking and the gospel as another. Right. Again, I think we live in a day where people want to reduce everything to a bumper sticker, and that doesn't always work. It is very useful to talk about a clear distinction between the law and the gospel. I think that's true, necessary, helpful. We also have to always come back, though, when we actually read any specific biblical text and we've come across the word law or we come across the word gospel, it may not be used in this kind of specific way we're talking about theologically. Making the distinction isn't sort of magic pill to solve every question of Bible interpretation. You still have to read passages in context, the broader context, narrower context. And, and you can't go through and you know, color code your Bible so that uh, <laughs> every verse is either red or green, is either law or gospel. That would be convenient and would probably sell, but wouldn't be very accurate. Do you think we could make money doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Uh, coming soon to the bookstore at Westminster <laughs> Seminary, California, the Law Gospel Bible. <laughs> the Stop and Go Bible. <laughs> There's potential here, Scott. <laughs> You're not just a pretty face, as we, <laughs> as we say at Westminster. Okay, so the law for the Christian, according to the Protestants, and again, these are distinctions and categories that were shared across the confessional boundaries that were affirmed by the Lutherans and the Reformed simultaneously. Right. Absolutely. This was the common heritage of the Reformation. You know, if you're inclined to see the Anglicans as distinctive, they shared this point of view as well. This law-gospel distinction was at the very heart of what the Reformation was all about. 
then the law for the Protestants didn't go away. So the purpose of the law-gospel distinction wasn't to get rid of the law, but to make sure that we used it properly. And so we talked about different uses. And what we've been talking primarily so far about is the first use of the law, or the pedagogical use that teaches us the greatness of our sin and misery and drives us to Christ. Then there's the second use of the law, which is the civil use, the application of the law to civil life, We don't do that anymore, so we don't have to talk about that. (laughs) You know, which raises lots of interesting questions, right? The civil use of the law. We could and have devoted lots of episodes of office hours to this very question. Right. I mean, the civil use of the law is how does the law continue to speak not just to the Christian, but to all of God's creatures? And the third use of the law is more particularly focused on the question of how do Christians continue to make use of the law of God? And so the third use is sometimes called the normative use. Why is the third use so important, and why do we make these distinctions? What's useful or important about these distinctions? Well, the first reason we make these distinctions, and I think it's always important to come back to this, is that we believe these are distinctions the Bible makes, that you can't really make sense of the Bible and its revelation without proper distinctions. If we had more time, we might talk about a whole nother series of distinctions about the law, the distinction of the ceremonial, judicial, and moral characteristics of the law as we find them in the Old Testament. Well, we should do that, because I was thinking of asking you that very question. I can read your mind. It's a small book. (laughs) Yes, and quickly read, yes. Scott and I like each other. That's why we can pick on each other. I want to make that clear to the listening audience. Don't get nervous. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to send help, you can. (laughs) So why did the church formulate this threefold distinction in order to account for the different kinds of law in Scripture? What was the intent behind it? Well, part of it is going back to what you had read from Matthew chapter 5, that if Jesus says you may not change a jot or tittle of the law, and yet it's clear we don't worship on the seventh day, we don't keep the dietary laws, There are a whole series of laws in the Old Testament that we don't keep. So have we violated what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? And what the church, I think, absolutely rightly has said is, no, Jesus is talking about the moral core and foundation of the law. He's not talking about every judicial law given to the nation of Israel or every ceremonial law related particularly to the temple and the life of Israel as a separated people. And if you don't make those distinctions, you soon can't make any sense of what the New Testament is saying. So again, we are not imposing distinctions on the Bible. We're allowing distinctions to arise from the Bible itself to make sense of what various texts are saying. So everyone who is not following the Mosaic ceremonial laws relative to animal sacrifice, hand washing, or the calendar, or what you eat, or your dietary laws, or everyone who is not practicing the Mosaic civil laws— If you haven't executed your put-to-death, that is, your mouthy uh, 13-year-old, yikes! either there's a reason for that or you're disobeying God's law. Right. And the reason this distinction is crucial is because if you don't make them, then it appears that Scripture contradicts Scripture. If Jesus says you can't change any law and Paul says we're not bound to the Mosaic dietary laws, then either there has to be a distinction in the understanding of law or Paul is contradicting Jesus. Now, there are a lot of people who want to say that, but I don't believe that. I believe this is a single, coherent revelation that doesn't contradict itself. And there are reasons for making the distinction. That's why the Westminster Divines said in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, section 3, beside this law, meaning the Ten Commandments, 
commonly called moral law, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. And then section 4, to them also as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Right. And what's helpful about the Westminster Confession there in that 19th chapter is it reminds us that the laws given to Israel were not just arbitrary or unimportant, but that they fulfilled an important function in that period of promise to be preparing Israel to receive the revelation of Christ, to receive the gift of the Messiah, and understand what he was coming to do and what he was coming to accomplish. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God people. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. There are some today, and there have always been in the church, some who say, well, the moral law, not just the civil laws and the ceremonial laws, but the moral law, which we can summarize as love God with all your faculties and your neighbor as yourself, those laws also went away or are no longer binding on those who believe in Jesus. And there are other characteristics as well of this movement, and we call that movement antinomianism. Can you talk a little bit about the history of antinomianism? Well, it's curious. There have been real antinomians in the history of the church, and I suppose we could divide them into two categories. The ones, a very small group probably, who say it doesn't really matter now that we're saved how we live at all. And another group of antinomians who say because we have the Holy Spirit, we really don't need external guidance as to how to live. We'll just, by that presence of the Holy Spirit within us, know how we ought to live. And to both of those groups, the vast majority of Christians historically have said, no, that is not adequate. That is not right. We continue as true believers in Jesus Christ to need direction out of the law of God, out of the revelation of God as to how we ought to live. We are not to be trusted. And the Reformed have been particularly good at making that point. We are not to be trusted. We need help. We need help certainly by the Holy Spirit, and God graciously has given us His Spirit. But we also need help by the Word the Spirit inspired so that we might know the will of God and hold that up as a standard that we should pursue. There's a lot of concern right now about the question of sanctification and the need for godliness, and there is a perception out there that All the emphasis over the last, say, 10 or or 12 or 15 years on justification has produced a kind of antinomianism. And so now there's a a counter-reaction to that. What do you make of all of that? And particularly, I'm wondering, when we make this distinction, this classic Protestant distinction and Reformed distinction between law and gospel, sometimes people look at that 
as a kind of you know I have several different kinds of reactions to that. One is it really is disappointing how short the memory of people is. The reason that in the last 30 years there's been a lot of focus on justification is because there was a massive attack on justification. That seems to be sort of forgotten. People didn't, in the last 30 years, start talking about justification because they wanted to be antinomian or because they didn't want to talk about the law. They started talking about justification because in the last 30 years, the Protestant doctrine of justification has been attacked from so many different sides. It's been attacked from within Protestantism. Sometimes as Protestants have talked to Roman Catholics, it's become clear the Protestants have forgotten their own doctrine and have made concessions uh, in ecumenical dialogues with Roman Catholics that are a betrayal of the Reformation. And when I say a betrayal of the Reformation, I get heated about that, not because I think the Reformation is so important in itself, but because I think the Reformation got the Bible right. So, you know, there's been an attack coming from Karl Barth on the Protestant doctrine. There was a Roman Catholic Lutheran dialogue that ended up compromising the doctrine of justification. There was evangelicals and Catholics together that were not able to make a clear Protestant statement. Other problems within the Protestant community arose, and the stress on justification was because it seemed clear to many people, and I was one of them, that masses of people in conservative Protestant churches didn't seem to know the doctrine of justification. Now, there's always the danger that in highlighting a doctrine, you may leave some people without an adequate sense of balance of how one doctrine relates to another. But if we compare the defense of justification with defense of the inerrancy of Scripture that actually slightly preceded it, maybe, in some ways, you know, there are some people who defend the inerrancy of Scripture in stupid ways. There are some people who claim to be inerrantists but approach the Bible with all sorts of crazy conclusions. But that doesn't and never should undermine the doctrine of inerrancy itself. And the same is true of justification. The fact there may be some people who took the just doctrine of justification and abused it or misused it uh, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be just as passionate as we've always been to articulate and believe the historic Reformation doctrine of justification. Because it's that that brings peace to the soul, peace to the conscience, hope for Christian living. I really think it's true that the best approach to sanctification is an approach that takes justification seriously as part of what the Christian life is all about. Why is it so important to the doctrine of sanctification to get the doctrine of justification right? Well, because if we don't have the doctrine of justification right, our approach to sanctification is inevitably going to be a nervous, self-centered approach to sanctification. God doesn't want our sanctification to be self-centered. He wants it to be God-centered and neighbor-centered. And if we're not clear that we're right with God through the work of Christ that we receive by faith alone, then we always have to be looking at ourselves and worrying about ourselves. Have I gotten far enough? Have I gotten good enough? Is God going to be happy with me? And that nervousness that is ultimately a kind of self-centeredness, that is not what the gospel calls us to. So in other words, if one is really concerned about sanctification, then the first thing to do is to get the gospel right. Right. And I think that's what you see in the best Puritans. It's ironic that those of us who subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the greatest Puritan summary of theology, 
are sometimes accused of being antinomian, when by the very name Puritan, it seems unlikely that you're indifferent to purity or the pursuit of holiness. So exactly, once you get justification right, and the Westminster Standards express justification as clearly and biblically as any document I know, that is the basis on which you can really make a godly biblical progress in sanctification. I get the sense that there are Reformed Christians, particularly, who are no longer satisfied with the traditional notion of the third use of the law, as reflected, for example, in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism, which lays out the doctrine that the law continues to be binding on the Christian, not in order to be justified, but because we have been, and then exposits the law as the Westminster Standards do in the way that we ought to obey it. What do you make of this move to sort of redefine what we think about sanctification and the use of the law? One of my great concerns is that I have seen in my lifetime, which is getting on to be we won't count the years. Rather long. <laughs> in my lifetime, I've just seen a lot of people who probably very sincerely and well-meaning way have declared that they are more Reformed than the Reformed tradition and that they are improving on the Reformed tradition to meet either more biblical standards or more contemporary needs. And in every one of the cases I've looked at, they have ended up seriously missing the Reformed tradition and weakening the Reformed cause. Our heritage is one of the most glorious heritages in terms of the careful study of the Scripture and the careful incorporation of that Scripture knowledge. And what I think is one of the great problems facing our time is that way too many leaders in Reformed churches don't know our Reformed heritage. They don't know what Calvin taught. They don't know what the confessional standards of the Reformed churches teach. And therefore, they don't really see the glories of the balance and the insight into Scripture that our heritage holds. And I think the Bible says the proof is in the pudding. They don't—that's a kind of NIV translation. (laughs) By their fruit, you will know them. All of these efforts to make the churches purer have failed. Our churches are not purer today than they were 100 years ago. We have seriously— gone backward in terms of sanctification in the lives of our churches. And I can see why that has motivated people to try to find a new approach to sanctification, but it's not working. And uh, whether we look at our application of the second commandment in worship or the application of the fourth commandment in Sabbath keeping, or whether we look at the application of the seventh commandment in divorce in our churches, there are really serious problems of sanctification that are not being addressed because I think we don't really get the glory of our own heritage. Historically and arguably presently, whenever there has been a perceived turn to antinomian there is almost always an equal and opposite reaction toward what is historically known as nomism or neonomianism. What is it, and why is it a problem? Well, neonomianism is a confusion of the law and the gospel. It's a reading of the law and the character of the law into the definition of faith. The simplest way of putting it, it would be to say that there is a movement away from saying we're say, by faith alone, faith defined as looking away from ourselves to Christ, resting in Christ alone, to saying, in effect, we're justified by faithfulness. And the two things can sound kind of close, but my faithfulness is still a rather self-centered concept, as opposed to faith, which looks away from myself to Christ as being a Christ-centered notion. And my old friend Arthur Kushke used to say that there is a kind of antinomianism that can be called easy believism, 
But he said, unfortunately, the, the neonomian reaction of that becomes easy obeyism, that uh, it too doesn't uphold the full rigor of the moral law of God, but it's making law-keeping just easier. Ultimately, and ironically, antinomianism and nomism or neonomianism are really twins. Kissing cousins, at least. Because neither one of them really estimates the law the way it should be estimated. So the nomist thinks, I can keep the law, and he might say, with the help of grace, and then go on to say, unto being accepted by God, or unto justification. So then you really haven't factored in Deuteronomy 27, 26, or as Paul uses it in Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything which is written in the book of the law. And the antinomian says, well, now that I've been delivered from the curse of the law by Christ, the law doesn't have anything to say to me at all whatsoever, and both underestimate the power and the authority of God's law. Is that fair? Right. Absolutely. So how does being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, change the Christian's relation to the law so that he can, with the help of grace, seek to live in conformity to it? Well, there is a dual fruit to faith. That's one of the great things Calvin wants to point out in the third book of the Institutes. He talks about the nature of faith, and then he says there are two fruits of faith in the life of a Christian. One is the fruit of justification, as we rest by faith alone in Christ. But the other fruit is repentance or sanctification, as we know Christ, as we rest in him, as we trust in him. We are more and more attuned to his holy will, to his love for us, and therefore eager to pursue holiness in relation to him. Does the law condemn the Christian, the believer, in any way at all? I think the scripture indicates that the law can threaten the Christian and that the threats of the law are to be taken seriously by the Christian because the threats of the law say, If you are living in sin, and if your sin is not covered by Christ, you will be condemned. That's true for the Christian as well as for everybody else. But Christ has borne that threat of the law for his own. Christ has borne that curse, and therefore, ultimately, the Christian will not be condemned because Christ has borne the condemnation. So, in reality, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the Scripture clearly teaches. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There were antinomians in the 17th century, or at least those who are frequently or commonly called antinomians, who said that now that we are in Christ, God cannot see our sin. That seems like a mistake to me. Am I right or wrong? How do you analyze that? No, I think that's right. I think, again, you know, you can sort of understand the motive of such a statement, but I I don't think that's right. He does see our sin. That's why it is appropriate that we remain a confessing of our sins people. In historic Reformed liturgies, there is a, a weekly confession where we're encouraged in private prayer to confess sins more frequently than weekly. There is a kind of antinomianism that wants to say, well, no, no, once, once your sins are forgiven, you don't need to talk about that anymore. It's all taken care of. It's all in the past. You don't, and I think that's wrong. We, we continue to be a sinful people, so we need to be a repentant people. 
There is Romans 7, and assuming for the sake of this discussion that Paul's describing the Christian and his own struggle with sin, and if not Romans 7, then certainly elsewhere in the New Testament, if that's the case, and if sanctification is putting to death the old man and the making alive of the new, as we say, for example, in the Heidelberg Catechism and in the Westminster Standards, then we have to be confessing our sin. Confessing entails recognizing that I have sinned in this particular instance, right? Right, exactly. And I think one of the interesting controversial statements, although it's hardly ever raised as a controversial statement, of the Heidelberg Catechism is after the exposition of the law, the question is raised, can we keep all this perfectly? And the answer begins by saying, is it question 114? The answer begins with a statement, no, in this life even the holiest have only small beginnings of obedience. I think that's absolutely right. I think that reflects a biblical view of the Christian, of the law, and of God. Relative to God, the beginnings the holiest in this life make are very small. Relative to the holiness of God, we're a long way. The holiest of us are a long way from the holiness of God. Now, relative to the world, we may say we've made, we should have made significant progress, but we need to be humbled before God. We need to have our breath taken away by His holiness and by the distance we still have from his holy standard. In the second half of the answer to question 115, the question you were just discussing, it says, likewise, that we constantly endeavor and pray to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we may become more and more conformable to the image of God till we arrive at the perfection proposed to us in a life to come. Exactly. And the second half of 114 says that we begin seriously to keep not only some, but all of the laws of God. So, you know, I can't be an axe murderer and say, well, I do pretty well with the other nine commandments. It's just, you know, the sixth commandment I have trouble with. Our sanctification has to be the pursuing of all the commandments of God, but recognize real progress on the one hand and such a long way to go on the other hand. So we can certainly say that the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to create new life in his people and to bring them to faith Uh, to unite them to Christ, and to work in them a new life as a consequence of all of that. Are we also saying that the Holy Spirit is using the law in some way also to conform us to Christ and to help us to grow and to become more sanctified? Absolutely. And that's reflected in uh, all of our catechisms, the Reformation tradition, where the exposition of the Ten Commandments functionally operates to help us see what God's will for our lives is. As we draw this discussion to a close, meditate for us a little bit on the value of the law for the Christian as he or she is thinking about the daily struggle with sin and repentance and sinning again and repentance and turning to Christ. How does the law help in that? And how, how does it work relative to the way the gospel helps us? You know, I'm part of the Dutch Reformed tradition, and in that Dutch Reformed tradition, there is a a weekly reading of the law, and that weekly reading of the law always has a twofold purpose. One is to remind us of our sin and our continuing need of the mercies of God in Christ, and the other is to hold up to us a light of the way in which we should more and more be seeking to work. And there's always a danger in a recurring part of the liturgy that it becomes something you daydream through. And that's a real danger because both of those elements of the functioning of the law 
regularly in the life of the Christian is so crucial. We need to be humbled regularly by the law and before the holiness of God, and we need to be helped and encouraged with the light that the law casts upon our path to help us to see the way in which we ought to walk. So it's important for Christians to be hearing the law on a regular basis. I think so, absolutely. You know, it's interesting that in the 16th century, the Reformers, both Lutheran and Reformed, believed that one of the great goals of the Church was to ensure that people really knew the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. And they felt if we could achieve a level of catechesis where people knew and understood those three things, they would have accomplished a great deal. I think at some point, Protestants began to sort of take all that stuff for granted. And I fear in lots and lots of Protestant churches today, there are probably lots and lots of people who don't know the Apostles' Creed, who don't know the Ten Commandments, who may not even know the Lord's Prayer. And we are rapidly getting back to a place where the very foundations of catechesis that 100 years ago we could almost take for granted now all need to be laid anew. And the regular use of those three documents in public worship is very helpful in achieving that catechetical goal. And then how does the gospel work in the life of the Christian to fuel, enable, liberate us, or however we want to describe? How do we want to describe the role of the gospel in this process of bringing us into conformity to God's holy law? You know, I think one way of expressing that is the way Jesus expressed it, he who loved much loves much. So if we really are clear in how much Jesus loved us, how much he had to do to save us, that is going to be a key motivating factor in terms of our desiring to love him and live a life that genuinely loves him, doesn't love him in some sentimental, self-serving way, but loves him as he's, you know, made clear he wants to be loved. If you love me, keep my commandments. Some of the essentials of this stuff is pretty simple. So really seeing what Christ has done for us is always critical to being a Christian and living as a Christian. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.